This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con 2015. And that's plenty. Plenty for an entire episode. An episode about Gen Con 2015. Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's what a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone stops a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! So, the topic today, uh, to begin with, and throughout this entire podcast, is our traditional gaming hot look at Gen Con, and of course this year, because if we look over the calendar, it's uh, at 2015, so we must be talking about Gen Con 2015. It would be uh, weird, uh, though perhaps nostalgic, to talk about Gen Con 1993, for example. And so, uh, recording this the day after, we've both returned uh, home. I've had some slumber. Can I hear you've had slightly less slumber? I had the joy of going to see Mission Impossible 5 right after the show with uh, Will Hindmarch and Ralph Shemin and Will's lovely wife, Sarah, uh, which is something I don't usually do. I usually just lay quietly on the couch and let Virgil and pizza restore me slowly to health. And I now know why I don't usually go see a movie because that was that was quite a that was quite an effort, it turned out, to sit peacefully in a theater and watch a perfectly adequate installment of a spy thriller franchise. So, yeah, lying still in a darkened room with minimal input of any kind is, I think, the ideal post-Gen Con balm. Uh, well, a uh, balm we will need, because I'm, i got to start off with some uh, terrible, terrible news, everybody. As you will recall, uh, the Austin, Live from Austin episode was uh, had somewhat dodgy audio because the recording app that up to that point had been faithfully fulfilling its duties on my phone as I record the show with a little microphone attachment had uh, decided that any sort of pause whatsoever in between uh, words 
was uh, somehow wasteful. And so it uh, made us all sound weird and jittery. So I got a new app and I tested it out at home and it worked perfectly fine. And guess what, Ken? Uh, it doesn't like hour long pieces of brilliance. It hates brilliance. It's done by jealous people. Okay. Yes. So the sad news is that we had an epic recording fail on the live episode, which is a drag because it was a lot of fun and I would have liked to hear it again. And I know you and listener land would like to. And the aliens in Pluto are going to be really steamed. Yeah. Well, uh, they can take it out on the deep ones because uh, the recording sounds roughly like that. Um, so clearly there were uh, those among you in the audience uh, at the show who were deep ones. Uh, I think you were all well-disguised deep ones, whoever you were, but the translation devices that were, you were using interfered with the recording and got leaked onto the uh, actual recording file. So it does sound like uh, deep ones talk about stuff live, and I'm very, very doubtful that uh, our audio engineer, Wiz Rob Borges, as awesome and skillful as he is, will be able to uh, salvage this in any way. So I'm afraid that's been lost to the ages. We must all steal ourselves for that. And uh, with that bit of bad news at the top of the show, you want to start with the bad news and get on to the good news. It's time for the uh, our overall takeaway uh, and our overarching impressions. So, uh, Ken, uh, what uh, did you uh, take away other than a suitcase full of authors, copies, and tribute? Um, my takeaway is that Gen Con is, uh, it remains healthy. The show was Bigger and better than ever. The the demographic that came by the Pograin booth, the role-playing demographic, which is the only demographic that I um, uh, cherish as brothers as opposed to value as humans, um, they they came to our booth in uh, good numbers and in uh, good uh, increasing levels of diversity across age and across ethnicities and across uh, genders, and all manner of people just began to show up. And every time we would get a gaggle of high school age People, uh, boys and girls and, uh, whatnot, all various, uh, shades of pink and brown rushing up to buy things and talk nerd to each other and, uh, get Robinson eyes autograph with awestruck wonder that such dinosaurs are still amongst <laughs> us. I, I would always turn to Robin and say, well, it's a shame that the hobby is dying. And, yes. uh, it is, uh, some, uh, a refrain that Robin has introduced and I, of course, am proceeding to beat to death because that is my role in our, uh, dyad. Yes, tabletop gaming has been uh, dying throughout its uh, 40 or, I guess, 50 years of uh, careful or sometimes uh, explosive growth. And uh, it was dying to the tune, as you suggest, of a uh, big breakout in different uh, groups of people that we have not seen before. We had 9% more people at the show overall, and I think the stat everybody is... Uh, using to let that sink into their brains is that the show has doubled in attendance in five years. So no wonder we're busier uh, yeah. than we've ever been before. Uh, so, uh, and that's something I wanted to highlight too, is particularly that there are, in addition to the uh, gender gap continuing to uh, steadily close, suddenly this year there were a lot of uh, people in their teens and 20s. And it's been pretty clear for a while that somebody out there is still playing them who isn't the same age as the people who've been playing it since we started, or otherwise we wouldn't be seeing a general uh, growth in role-playing. But uh, you don't often, or until now, you're not really seeing them show up at uh, uh, conventions like Gen Con, and 
there's all sorts of reasons why you would think that would be, which is that Gen Con is crazy expensive. And uh, also that uh, it is not the way of teens or even college-age people to want to hang around with a bunch of uh, middle-aged adults. There's uh, it, That's just not the way uh, social interaction works. But they uh, are there at the show now and are playing. And obviously we know that anybody, uh, nearly anybody, who takes the trouble to get to Gen Con when they are but a, a wee sprout of a thing, a nipper as it were, a is tad. Going, a tad is going to uh, uh, stick around in the hobby for uh, for years to come and hopefully take care of us in our uh, dotage, Ken. Yes, ideally. Our dotage will be enlivened by going to Gen Con and being propped up in some uh, ancestor's corner and people will wander by on their hover feet or whatever they have and uh, drop uh, quatloos into our slot just to hear us uh, declaim uh, live from Gen Con one more time, uh, and ideally buy uh, further games that Robin and I have been inventing in the hypercloud or wherever it is one invents games in that misty future. So consequently, I feel that I worked this Gen Con harder than anyone, uh, not harder than any person, but harder than any previous Gen Con, and uh, that it was level, you know, another level of busy and, and complicated and sensory overload, and that the thing that seemed you know, especially acute this year was just that there was a whole huge uh, list of people who I normally expect to get to spend a little time with, who I maybe saw them across uh, the way at the Cadillac Ranch uh, bar at the uh, Diana Jones Awards at the beginning, or, you know, very briefly past them as we were both trying to rush back to our booths. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why would this suddenly be the case other than just general busyness? And I think it is actually that if you are now working a booth at Gen Con, you want to be there as much as you can. And so you don't have the time to do what we used to do back in the olden days is it would get slow at a booth and you'd go wander around the hall and you'd stop and chat to other people during their booth shifts. And so you got a feeling that you'd at least, you know, had a few minutes to talk to this person or that person. And now uh, everybody is chained to their uh, booths, which of course is a good thing overall, uh, but it's uh, sort of disorienting that that uh, kind of, uh, social bonding element of the show is starting to really feel the squeeze. And even though uh, I wound up staying up maniacally late almost every night, uh, sometimes even when I had squeezed in a breakfast meeting the, the next day to get to see people and get some quality time with people, that just quality time with all the folks that I uh, want to see was in short supply. And that's uh, we'll have to figure out some other way of doing it, I guess, because that is the currency on which the wonderful cross-pollination of the industry depends. And there is, uh, you know, long remarked upon sense of solidarity between people working at different companies and doing different things that you just don't see in other fields of entertainment, let alone other industries. And as we are forced to become more and more professional because the uh, business side of it is growing, uh, I think we'll have to take extra care to kind of tend that garden because, you know, it's uh, it's a matter of we're going to have to put hanging out with each other and uh, making sure I talk to this person or that person, you know, part of the action item list for a convention and not leave things up to serendipity anymore because uh, serendipity is punked out. Yep. Serendipity uh, has been trapped at her booth selling yes, exactly. her, her new card game. And and I hear she uh, she moved a lot of uh, copies of the uh, collector's edition as she, well. She did because it's really good. Um, yeah, you know, it, it it's luck based, but you know, that's that's her her jam. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, this is the first, every so often there's a Gen Con, this a little personal milestone Gen Con for me. There was a Gen Con, I think it was the last, second to last year in Milwaukee where I realized that I had not done all of Gen Con. I used to be able to look in at the auction and go by the minis area and watch people shove minis around and, uh, play some games and do some demos and walk the whole booth and meet everyone as, as Robin suggests and have plenty of, of good fun. And I felt like I'd done all of Gen Con, everything that was in the program book, I'd at least touched. And then I think maybe the second or third year after it moved to Indianapolis, I got the sense that I not only had not done all of Gen Con, because by then they'd added the movie tracks and the anime tracks and the uh, family tracks and the uh, crafting uh, room and all these other new things, I then realized I hadn't even done all of gaming Gen Con. Right. That I had not, uh, gone anywhere near the miniatures, which is the first time in ever in Gen Con history. I hadn't gone and sort of balmed my soul by watching guys move little Napoleons around fighting little Hitlers and little Martians. And I always love miniature. I love the visual stimulus of it. I like the, the sort of the calm is it's like sort of American Zen, I guess, to watch little lead figures shoot at each other, uh, over a carefully tended miniature landscape. And I didn't get to do that that year because I, I had to cut stuff out. And I think this year is the first year I did not actually walk the entire hall. Uh, the, and so I, I've gone now from not even not doing all of gaming Gen Con to not even doing all the dealers hall, which is the room I'm trapped in the whole show. And it's because as, as you say, Robin, we were at our booth. Uh, selling and being present for our fans who are lovely enough to come by and get autographs. And- it is point number one of being there, and all other things must go by the wayside. But uh, more things are going by the wayside. Right. I literally had to play hooky from the booth in order to get any chance to walk any of the hall. And I, I sort of, we arbitrarily picked my friend Greg and I, who's in my home game, uh, went to Gen Con, and we arbitrarily picked sort of the back corner of the booth where uh, the Warpo guys had their Cthulhu figures and where it turned out uh, Zev was and Wolfgang Barr had uh, Kobold Press and, was and back Zeb there. would be Zeb Slashinger exactly uh, Zed Man or Z Man as we say now a uh, now a vital a vital uh, pillar of the Asmodee Empire and he was there and so I got to see him and Paul who is his longtime uh, associate and and uh, and partner and 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 buddy um, and uh, my source of of uh, New York punk era anecdotes and so we we had just a brief moment of time uh to talk and uh i saw sort of that little back area of the hall and i saw our hall uh our, you know our stretch and we were next to uh arc dream and just catty corner from chaosium so sort of the the front end of cthulhu and the back end of cthulhu i took care of but the whole middle part the long the, squamous middle the long squamous middle was a mystery a mystery zone to me and i didn't get to see any of it i didn't get to you know, so people ask, you know, what's the cool thing at Gen Con? It's like, well, if it isn't at our booth, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, so, well, I didn't even get enough time to spend, uh, you know, bonding time with the people at our booth. Yeah, uh, that's because true. Normally, uh, you know, we had meetings and stuff with Cat and Simon of Pelgrane, but normally, you know, there's a certain amount of time where you uh, stand uh, waiting between uh, customers and chat and come up with ideas and stuff and that sort of informal interaction uh, they were off at meetings the whole time and uh, or you know cat was uh, chained uh, along with the other uh, uh, operators of the uh, cash extraction zone back in the booth or you know simon was uh, you know hardly ever had a chance to be there so it's another example of how everything is getting 
uh, bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, or we, we just were all have three to, serving customers. Yeah. And, and we just have to make sure that we find other ways of maintaining the uh, conviviality uh, of the tabletop industry and also the accessibility of people who, like you and I or, or Simon or Kat, who are suddenly extraordinarily busy. Um, you know, when we both first started out, you could kind of roam the halls at a, a quiet time and introduce yourself to someone like uh, to Greg Stafford or whoever else was sort of on your list of people that you would like to get to know and get some uh, mentorship from people and uh, get an idea of how to uh, get in and what people's needs were. And although, uh, you know, as a freelancer, you can still sort of uh, approach the, the booth and, and make yourself known. The chances of being able to uh, kind of strike up the casual interaction on which so much networking in any field is based is going to uh, be reduced because, you know, at night when we are, uh, you know, have a chance to sit down and unwind, we're going to be uh, with our tightest homies and uh, not necessarily uh, seem or even be so approachable just because there's now such a, a premium on uh, time to interact. Yeah, I, this is, you know, uh, not necessarily immediately Gen Con related, but if you are a aspiring freelancer or someone who wants to make a closer connection with someone in the gaming industry for whatever reason, uh, this is the time, I guess, to start looking at that person's schedule for other conventions and obviously come to Gen Con because it's great. And you, as I think, as Robin says, you can maybe prioritize finding one person. And if you're lucky, maybe get a chance to meet with them. If you set it up ahead of time and you say, I'd like to, you know, pitch you something. Are you free to get it for me to buy you a drink at X time? And maybe that'll work. But if you, you're going to have to approach them at Origins or at uh, another regional convention that maybe they go to because they're in that area. So if you're looking to have what Robin and I had, we're lucky enough to have back in the nineties at Gen Cons. Um, you, it may be time to think that Gen Con is now the convention for, you know, full on adrenaline mainline of the gaming industry, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, stock up on, on, on things, uh, from booths and play 8 million demos and, and sort of be, live the full gamer life 24 seven. And then the professional freelancey, uh, uh, as, as you say, networking part, maybe has to sort of shift a little bit to a, to another convention. And, uh, I hate to say it because Gen Con used to be such great one-stop shopping for us as freelancers, but I'm not sure that, you know, you know, I, I, I would find it amazing if a freelancer was able to get two words of quality time edgewise with a, uh, with, with a, a busy, um, uh, uh, even in role playing, uh, booth, uh, owner, uh, much less a, a someone from the exalted realms of card games, for example. The, the way I would do it is to go in and volunteer to be part of somebody's organized play. Yeah. Uh, or they're uh, running games for them. And so that way you can kind of be in contact with them ahead of time, way ahead of time, like when the events are first being scheduled and uh, drop uh, them a line and say, hey, I really love your game line. I'd like to write for it someday. Do you need GMs? And the answer to that question will always be yes. Yeah. And so by putting in actual uh, sweat equity you know, <laughs> time to do this incredible vital volunteer effort because that's how games grow is by having people play them and so many people come to gen con either hoping to play the game they bought last year and couldn't find a group for or wanting to check out a game that they've been thinking of buying that that is a way to get face time and earn currency in a in a way that so that's 
uh, more calculating in a way, and it will take more of your time, but it's four hours or whatever, or eight hours or whatever you decide to elect to spend time doing something fun, running a game. If, if you don't enjoy running the games of a company, you're not going to enjoy writing for them, uh, surely. And I think that's probably a way to get FaceTime and get known. And in and fairness, that's what I did in the 90s for Chaosium. Is there I you go. started out volunteering to run Call of Cthulhu uh, for them more as a way to get into Gen Con free than as a way to eventually become a, a writer for Chaosium. But that it did turn out that way, that when it came time for me to, you know, send them feedback about Nephilim or talk to them about uh, public publishing books. They knew who I was and they knew that I wasn't a flake and they knew that I w at least could run a, a call of Cthulhu event that would fill, which is something that I think, you know, is not an unfair metric to judge someone's uh, creative gifts is can you actually keep a table of six people entertained uh, for four hours? That's not super hard. Right. And even if you're a little later and don't, if you don't know in February or whenever it is that you're going to be at Gen Con, if you would know a little later, uh, run the games of the companies that you love and want to work for at Games on Demand and let the relevant people at those companies know by saying, do you have a demo kit uh, for your game that I can run at uh, Games on Demand? And then again, that'll get you FaceTime when you meet up to uh, get the demo kit. And that's when mm -hmm. you can say, and, and by the way, I'm interested in uh, uh, writing for you and learning about the uh, business. And I'd really appreciate it, you know, a couple minutes to chat about that. And that's the way uh, for sure, uh, by, uh, you know, it's, it's basic tit for tat and, uh, or quid pro quo, I guess tit for tat would be, you would punch each other. That's not so yeah. good. <laughs> yes. or, or they would write for you, which seems yes. kind of like weird and backwards. It does. Yes. We, so, we've sort of gone down a little freelancer rabbit hole here, which is get out of that freelancer rabbit let's hole. get out of it. What do you, what do you think of Indianapolis in general now, uh, Robin, now that it's had a, a few years to steep as our, as our beloved hosts, I know that you have felt that, and I have felt certainly that if you are not a sports burger bar, that you have somehow abandoned Indianapolis for, for other, other climbs. But there was an Indian place that opened up. I heard about a, a vegan lunch counter, uh, which seems as un-Indiana as anything has ever seemed. Um, what, what did you find anything about Indianapolis or the, at least the central business district that, that charmed, delighted or intrigued you? Or is it once more an anathema upon them and you flee back to Yon Street? Um, I, I, I don't go to Indianapolis for the food. Uh, <laughs> the, well, <laughs> uh, you know, it's as you suggest, you it's and whole, all humanity. <laughs> yeah. Well, people from Indianapolis go to Indianapolis for the food, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the closest to, you know, an exciting or a different meal was uh, Fogo de Chao, which is a, uh, yet another giant uh, chain, but it's a well-executed chain, and it's something a little different. It's a, a Brazilian uh, a meditorium <laughs> yes. with opening layer of salad bar, um, and that was quite nice. They have a they do a mean uh, caperinha, 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 mm -hmm. and uh, that was uh, quite uh, uh, lovely. But it was more lovely for the uh, company, as is always the case at uh, at Gen Con. And you know, if I I gotta confess that if I found a really great restaurant within walking distance. In fact, I have my eye on one as a possibility for next year. I would not discuss it on the podcast. Well, I have not shared uh, either of my go-to places uh, on there the podcast, nor will I ever. But I will say that St. Elmo's was, as it always was, terrific. And I got my proper St. Elmo's steak cooked uh, correctly uh, on Wednesday. And that gave me a beautiful wave of endorphins and protein to waft me through the somewhat indifferent uh, meals that I occasionally scrabbled to get elsewhere. I still kind of like the, I, I will recommend, because uh, this is scarcely a secret, the 
City Circle Grill in the Marriott uh, is uh, reasonably okay, and particularly their uh, their orc loaf, as they <laughs> call it, four days of the year, otherwise known as their meat loaf uh, wrapped in bacon, and uh, that's, with mashed potatoes. That's pretty good, uh, you know. So that place is it's kind of. Uh, they need to buy some new chairs, though. <laughs> all of the, all of the <laughs> stuffing in, in half of their chairs is gone. So I was maybe to... they maybe they wait until right after Gen Con to replace their chairs. I guess so. On the grounds that why would you buy new chairs just before gamers come to sit in them? Well, I think those those chairs have not been swapped out on an annual basis. <laughs> okay, not on an annual basis. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the the vegan place is called Three Carrots, by the way, for people who are looking for it. And since there I don't care go. if a vegan place is crowded, knock yourselves out, vegetarians <laughs> and people who desperately crave any vitamin beginning with. Uh, B, <laughs> uh, you know, knock yourselves out and, and go to uh, three carrots. Well, from the health of veganism to the uh, drink tickets of uh, the Cadillac Ranch, let us now segue to our discussion of the first major award of Gen Con, which is given out uh, every year on a Wednesday night in an industry-only uh, invite affair, where that provided sort of an early opportunity to uh, meet beloved colleagues and uh, shout really loudly over them and lose your voice before the show even starts. <laughs> yes, to begin the show hungover and, um, uh, and hoarse. <laughs> yes, I'm going to pace myself a little more... Uh, because I was not anticipating the level of sleep deprivation. It's funny how an event where you're supposed to be able to speak coherently off the top of your head, you immediately start at an enormous deficit just on the Thursday morning. So I think I may uh, take it a little easier on the Thursday night. But a celebratory mood was had indeed because the winner of the Diana Jones Award was the uh, Guide to Glorantha, which I thought was uh, highly deserving and I guess this is uh, my time, first of all, for a little sidebar where I clear up a weird mass misapprehension that... The, uh, the Tynes effect has spread to the Robin. The Tynes effect. So I, uh, as I guess it's even a, the, a wisp of it being a secret that I'm on the Diana Jones committee has now uh, flown away since I actually legit won the award last year and uh, winners of the award uh, automatically get to be on the committee if they desire. And so in my capacity as a member of the committee who happily voted for the guide to Glorantha, but had no involvement in it other than as a proud backer, I, along with Matt Forbeck, presented the award. So I wrote the little description that will appear on the Dino Jones website explaining uh, why exactly the guide to Glorantha is awesome and uh, read some of it into a microphone before handing it over to Jeff Richard and Greg Stafford. And uh, Sandy Peterson wasn't there, but the rest of the Moon Design crew got up on stage to uh, do a victory lap. But apparently, if you're one of those people who, once they hear that the award is being given out and don't stir off of your chairs or stop talking from the edges of the bar, uh, because this year there was actually, you know, a PA that mostly worked if you came a little bit closer. Some people thought that I had won and was somehow involved in Guide to Glorantha. No, I was the presenter. I was the presenter, people. That's and right. all of the credit goes to Jeff Richards. That's like thinking that Channing Tatum and Jennifer Garner won the Oscar for Best Actress. <laughs> yes, which exactly. did not, in fact, happen. Although Channing happen. came close. Right. Well, maybe someday yes. he'll, he'll, there'll be an inspirational sports movie where he comes back from a handicap of some kind and he'll mm -hmm. be shot. Uh, but I am not Channing Tatum, and I 
in no way deserved to win an award for God to Galanthic because I didn't work on it. I was the presenter, and the very deserving winners were Jeff Richards, Sandy Peterson, Greg Stafford, and the rest of their team. Uh, and Ken, I know that uh, uh, you also, uh, if you were a member of the, the cabal... <laughs> Uh, it is to laugh. It is to I'm, laugh. I'm just a mild-mannered reporter. Uh, I would think that you uh, perhaps would also have had uh, some uh, fondness for that and been happy to see that uh, giant 12-pound monster of a kickstarted project, uh, which encapsulates the vast history of Greg Stafford's seminal setting uh, in a gigantic reference volume that uh, sort of realizes the previously un realizable dreams of a uh, staunch community of fans. Yes, it is always uh, fun to see a scripture reified. I felt very much like I was uh, St. Athanasius at the Council of Nicaea, seeing them finally ha hammer the Bible into shape. Yeah, I think uh, everybody was thinking that. Yes. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's a pretty common. And, and look, it's the Monday after, or the Tuesday I'm, after Gen I'm, I'm Con. I'm not saying it's a, it's a trite analogy. I'm just yeah. saying we were all thinking that that night. Yes. Anyway, um, yes, it's it's actually incisive reporting, not trite analogy. Where the hell were we? Now we've gone down an irony rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> it's next to the freelancing rabbit my hole. My larger point was that uh, <laughs> while membership in the shadowy cabal must remain a mystery to all, uh, I am usually really happy about with at least three out of five of the nominees. And in this case, uh, similarly so. And uh, the Guide to Galantha absolutely was a worthy winner and a worthy nominee, if only to sort of cement in the minds of all that Glorantha is itself a thing of gaming excellence. Uh, and that, that, uh, that magnificent pair of tomes that became the guide to Glorantha and is, you know, considerably thicker and, uh, more sumptuous than many an atlas on my own shelves of our world. It's a worthy monument to Greg's, uh, fantastic achievement of literal world creation of pulling something down out of the, 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 the cantosphere out of the mythic realms and bringing it in front of people and allowing them so much connection into his own uh, quasi shamanic uh, visions. It, it, it's really, it, it is. I mean, it, I, I joke about it being a scripture given final form, but it kind of is that thing. And only the absence of, actual storm bowl worshipers and please if you are an actual storm bowl worshiper do not tell me this i wish to hold my illusions right unless we have some chaos that needs mopping up and then well you know i'm, I'm not saying there isn't a reason to want the storm bowl around that's a different question well there's one reason i want the storm bowl around and about six not to so six not to your okay. impulse is not is not wrong yes my larger point being that it is <laughs> it is just generally glorious to see one of the preeminent achievements not in sort of, uh, not artistic achievements qua, but of the thing that we do in the hobby, right? It, it's, it's, it's something, it's so, we call it world building as though that was the same as when you build a world for a novel or you build a world for, uh, a, a movie or, or whatever. Right. But it's not. It's a different sort of art. It's like world building. It's like painting. It's like architecture. It's like narrative. It's like uh, epic poetry. It's like a lot of things, but it's its own art form. And in its purest form, I think I, to Glorantha is that thing that is done. And to see Greg's seminal achievement honored in that way and, and put in such lovely form, that itself is, is, is great to see it and have it win the Diana Jones Award is both delightful and well-deserved. And to see uh, Greg actually at the show, he hasn't been oh, there for a long so time. Great. Was, so uh, great. Marvelous. He was there uh, last year, though, because I interviewed him about Pendragon. Yeah, I guess he had uh, slightly forgotten that he was here last year. Cause yeah. I think he was telling me it had been uh, 
eight years or something. But that is the world of Gen Con, isn't it? And and the and the way of Greg. You yes. can't bind him with mere human time. Exactly. He's he's uh, still from the dream time. So yes, uh, very much so. Mere chronology does not uh, does not face him. Um, so I guess we can. Uh, it's not even a rabbit hole. It's a legit segue then to go to uh, from Guide to Glorantha to the big bit of industry news that came out of the show, uh, which is that Moon Design, the uh, company that has held the uh, rights to Glorantha for a number of years, has now purchased and is now uh, in uh, control of Chaosium. And so uh, I think, as people know, uh, the previous regime kind of faltered with the delivery of their Kickstarter for Horror on the Orient Express. And then imploded with their delivery of the Kickstarter for 7th edition. Right. And so everybody, I think, at this point kind of knows that uh, Greg and Sandy had to uh, come back uh, about a month ago, somewhere in there, and say that they were running the company and it was back in their hands and they had to, uh, you know, the first order of business is to execute and to get things uh, out to Kickstarter backers and uh, I think there might have been some misunderstanding that somehow Jeff, uh, Richard, and uh, Rick Mainz, who's the other uh, principal on the business front at uh, Moon Design, had somehow uh, come and dislodged them. But no, nothing could be the further the truth. This was the second step of what they were working out all along. Yes, Rick, Rick and Jeff are the reinforcements brought by Greg and Sandy. Exactly so. Um, and uh, they're both really great people. I've known them for a lot of years, and they are uh, formidable uh, Jeff is uh, the creative spearhead of Moon Design now, but he uh, is uh, had a high-flying uh, legal career previous to his uh, moving uh, to Germany to uh, be with the love of his life, and uh, who's now his wife, and be with their uh, kid. And so uh, he plowed all of his considerable energy and acumen into uh, Glorantha and running uh, Moon Design along with Rick Mainz, who's also got a quite formidable business uh, resume as well as being uh, sort of the leading collector of Chaosium stuff. He's even author of the Mainz Index, which was a catalog of all uh, Chaosium products. So uh, <laughs> he's now finally completed his collection yes. by buying Chaosium. And so they're not going to change the name to the Ordarium, uh, but no. I think we're going to be seeing a very uh, disorientingly different Chaosium that uh, is going to be able to uh, deliver on what it says it's going to do and to pay freelancers a a bold new step a, bold, a crazy new strategy yes. so sort uh, of uh you know it goes, goes against the corporate culture there i hope there's not a clash yeah i think i think we're definitely going to see a different corporate culture so yeah. uh if you have been worried about uh the state of chaosium this is the best possible news and i'm very excited to hear yes it. there 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 is no there is no better outcome than a chaosium that is uh, well-managed, that is financially secure, and that is run by people with a creative stake in the in, in the company and a creative past that indicates that they're really very good at both uh, handling pre-existing intellectual property uh, with respect and with uh, verve, and also with thinking a little bit outside the box and looking at new worlds to conquer. And I think that's what Moon Design has really proven with Glorantha is that they don't, they weren't just uh, happy to just sit there and reprint uh, 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 Prax a million times. They looked out and they said, what's the next thing that we need to do, not just for Glorantha, but 
for gaming. And so that's when they brought Robin in to design Hero Wars or Hero Quest. I can, I can remember which one it is now. Because it was both, right? So this is really complicated, so I'll try to keep it uh, That's short. why I can never remember right. it. <laughs> um, I did Hero Wars originally for uh, Isari's Incorporated, which was a company that Greg set up. Uh, trying, uh, He was trying to do kickstarting before there was kickstarting, and mm-hmm. so he sort of tried to create a mechanism where fans could uh, donate to and buy shares in the company. But unfortunately, that's not the way American securities laws work, and so he was sort of forced to scale back and then eventually... Uh, he transferred the rights to Moon Design, and in the interim, there was a, a new edition of Hero Quest that I did not have uh, much directly to do with, uh, and it kind of it was it's, it was kind of an odd bird because it tried to move that very narrative system back toward uh, simulating certain things, which is like uh, asking a fish to ride a bicycle. Uh, there are perfectly great uh, organisms for bicycle riding, but the fish is not one, and then. When uh, Moon Design uh, came along, they asked me to do HeroQuest 2, which is the uh, version of those rules that realizes their original intention of both stripping away the simulative elements of HeroQuest 1 and also uh, taking advantage of the new insights that I'd gotten into the design uh, since I designed it many years ago. And one of the new products for the show is HeroQuest Glorantha. The original HeroQuest 2 was a generic rule set, and this is the one that tunes it to Glorantha specifically. So that right. was a, a great little thing to have come along to accompany this uh, fabulous uh, week for uh, Glorantha and Chaosium and Moon Design at Gen Con. So get Hero Quest 2 and Hero Quest Glorantha, except no substitutes. Yes, indeed. Um, unless you're buying Hero Games, which are an entirely different thing, uh, and uh, they are as bicycly a game as you could possibly want. Yes, and uh, put a cyclist on their on their bicycle. Um, and so, uh, let us uh, segue then to uh, what is probably the bigger, uh, because some games are uh, just numerically bigger than others, narrative of the show, which I think we can tell uh, by looking at the Ennies, and that is the resurgence of Dungeons & Dragons. So, Ken, you want to describe uh, for uh, those who've been waiting for us to describe it, what happened at the Ennies? Uh, what happened at the Ennies was that I believe Dungeons & Dragons won 16 awards uh, which is pretty good even for Dungeons & Dragons. The Ennies are traditionally a fight for silver between the games that are not Pathfinder and the and uh, the games that are not Monty Cook. And Monty Cook and Pathfinder fight for the gold, and then one of the winners, sometimes it goes gold, Monty Cook, and silver Pathfinder, and then everyone else says, well, you know, Monty, he's good. And then uh, sometimes it goes uh, gold, Pathfinder, and silver Monty, and everyone says, eh, that was all right. And sometimes you're lucky it goes gold Monty or Pathfinder and silver a third party. And the third party goes, yay, we've taken the hill. Yeah, someone squeaks in and uh, gets a little uh, much needed exposure right. for themselves. But now D&D is back. So now there are three big guns trained on this same hill. So to get even a silver is a triumphal achievement if you're not one of those. And in the year that D&D comes back, uh, D&D really comes back. And in this particular case, they came back to the tune of, like I said, I think 16 total Ennies for Dungeons & Dragons products uh, across, obviously a wide variety of categories and poor Jeremy Crawford was, you know, his, I think his neck is permanently now in a sort of an S shape from having all of that tinware, uh, labeled about it. I thought he did an incredibly great job of each time he went up having, uh, while remaining, uh, brief and thankful of having a different little thing to say. Uh, and his last, uh, he saved his material for the end and his last, uh, couple of uh, acceptances I thought were uh, pretty moving and great. So it was uh, 
I really lovely to see that happen for him. Yeah, it it, it was very uh, well handled and certainly very classy on uh, D&D's part. And, you know, you can argue back and forth over whether it was well-deserved in any given case, but I think we're all in agreement, both creators and, and fans, that D&D 5th edition is a pretty robust, pretty strong, solid edition of D&D. It does what it wants to do. It does what it set out to do. And it does it without quite the number of headaches that, say, 3rd edition involved, and without quite the amount of uh, soul transitioning that the fourth edition involved. Obviously, I don't want to say it's all down to two of the consultants on the project, but you can't really, <laughs> you can't really rule it out, can you, Robin? Well, you know, El- Elvis dust is Elvis dust. Yeah, right. There's, there's, we, we, we are not in charge of where our power goes and how powerfully it manifests. It's important to have an early but strategic influence on a project and then let other people do all the it's, work. It's the, um, uh, the, the, the first settler effect. Uh, we, we impute just a tiny shift, but the asteroid is hundreds of miles away from where it would have been had we not just moved it just gently towards its target. And this is a an example of, you know, figuring out what's going in, in tabletop is, you know, e- even more so than ever an uh, exercise in uh, trying to feel the whole elephant. And uh, in this case, it wasn't necessarily incredibly apparent that uh, D&D has been roaring back in people's affections. And I think this is now when we've sort of, it's solidified and we've seen that uh, happen and their design goal obviously was to re- roll it back uh, past uh, the days of third edition, which of course lives on in Pathfinder, Pathfinder to something more like how we a simpler version of how we remember uh, first and uh, second edition being, and the idea to roll back to a less uh, crunchy, more casual style of D and D is not something that off the top of your head, you would think would be a hundred percent sure thing because we have seen over the years, the real love for uh, Paizo and Pathfinder and they're, they're holding forth the flame of that uh, really crunchy system mastery. And, and we've seen that that's not a creative dead end either because the Pathfinder yeah. material, I mean, whether they're unlikely their fourth or fifth bestiary they're you know, they've mapped out most of their continent of Galerion and the quality of the products hasn't dropped. I mean, the, their adventure paths stay really cool. People are really, really jazzed about Pathfinder stuff. There's always lines around the block whenever they have new stuff coming out. So it's not, I mean, it's not like, you know, they're just sort of going through the, the, the miserable treadmill part of D20. They've actually found, you know, the, the rich mother load of fun in that kind of crunchy bicycle rich gaming and are, you know, doing a great job with it. And the fact that D and D had that and that the creative staff at, at, uh, at Wizards, Mike Merles and, and, uh, his fellow, uh, designers said, let's, let's leave that country un you know let's not defend that country let's not go back to war for that let's go back and look at second and first and uh look at those with the eyes of people who've played third and fourth with the eyes of people who've played other uh role-playing games in the interim and and sort of infuse some of that you know wisdom back into the innocence and simplicity of a relative simplicity of first and second and i think mike said uh we're no longer a game with a rule for everything uh, and, and that's sort of a, a deep philosophical decision that once you make it, it sort of, it frees your mind a little bit because you can have special cases for things that the game is actually about. And that you, it helps you tell what the game's about in my experience. Right. And so it's back to the whole idea of re-empowering the GM to, uh, be imaginative and to make stuff up on the fly and, uh, and to 
uh, be more of kind of a beer and pretzels version of, of D&D in a way. And I think what that highlights also is the uh, strength of what Paizo has done with organized play in that I think they have, it turned out that there were a lot of people who were uh, playing their game uh, who uh, love the crunchiness of, of Pathfinder, but also they have a big group of people who were playing in their organized play because they wanted to find a game. And it's that group of people who are now, uh, some of them are more comfortable with the uh, lighter version of D&D, obviously, because from uh, sales, uh, we can tell that, you know, there's a bunch of people uh, they may have a lot of loyalty to Paizo, but the style of D&D that they want to play is the, the one that's a little easier on the, on the brand. And again, and so, it's not like the two aren't interoperable. You could buy uh, Paizo products and play them with a simpler system because sure. it, they don't change things. You just leave stuff out, and that's generally pretty simple to do. Yeah, I would imagine there's probably a lot of people running uh, AD&D, or sorry, D&D 5. Uh, in Glarian. Yeah. And so we'll probably still continue to buy uh, lots of Paizo stuff. And I guess the other uh, big story out of the Ennies that is not immediately Ken and Robin related is that uh, a DIY product, an OSR uh, product, uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess's Own Red and Pleasant Land by Zach S., took a startling four Ennies, given that the sales figures for that game are, while respectable for a small press, like 3,000 copies, are not enough, you would think, to win a award that has north of 20,000 voters in it. But it seems that uh, the, the real uh, quality and insane amount of work that Zach and Jez Gordon and James Raggy put into Red and Pleasant Land, uh, and the fact that Alice in Wonderland meets Dracula is just an awesome high concept for a campaign. Uh, pull, pulled it, uh, through the, the fire and it won four, uh, and he's including two very, very coveted golds. I think one was for best setting, which is a award that I have won. And so I cherish it even more than I cherish other any awards. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it is possible to take that hill from, uh, Monty and, uh, Paizo and D and D if you just put out a, really phenomenally good product. And I've got a blurb on the back of it that tells you in more detail what I think. But if you can find a copy in a game store, check it out. And I assume that James is rushing right back to reprint because well, this is the kind of good news that you generally can't buy. And uh, I think it, uh, personally, uh, having looked at the game in some detail during its uh, design process, Zach was very open about it on his blog. And uh, having seen early drafts because Zach uh, sent them to me, uh, thinking that uh, as, as a consultant who'd fixed D&D, uh, as you and I did, that perhaps I could have a couple of thoughts, maybe. Um, and then I didn't, because Zach is Zach, and what am I going to tell him? You know, no, more goblin-y. Uh, but, right. but the larger point being that I've, I've sort of seen this product grow through the years that Zach's been working on it. I saw uh, the early copies, uh, and I blurbed it happily, and now it's just a gorgeous freaking tome. And it, and it won four Ennies to uh, I think the amazement of Zach and his friends, much less to the amazement of the general crowd that might not be super familiar with the old school Renaissance and with the DIY community in general, but it's really active. And there's, there are tons of people out there writing blogs that don't even care what edition of D and D you're talking about because they're writing stuff that could plug into D and D zero, or it could plug into D and D five, or it could plug into, you know, Pathfinder, if that's the the way that your boat floats. And that's a community that I think, gets ignored a lot of times because we think, oh, they're just, you know, Xeroxing, um, you know, the Underdark 8 million times, or they're Xeroxing uh, the, the steadying of the Hill Giants. But no, they're they're out there sort of playing these games on the ground the way that they want to play it. And it's not old, you know, uh, you know, 60-year-old neckbeards 
uh, playing uh, Zero Edition. It's it's kids and punks and people out there having fun. They're part of that new diversity of design. And it's a good corrective to the notion that all design must march forward in some sort of Marxist teleological sense that, you know, a, ga- a good game is a good game, whether it was designed in 1977 or 1981, as Call of Cthulhu was, or a couple of years ago. Well, I'd love to see more cross-pollination between uh, the OSR movement and, you know, gaming in general. And we've always sort of in the past uh, seen that, that, you know, even people who have very different tastes in games all sort of uh, get together and... Uh, uh, feel a sense of collegiality and thus ideas are exchanged and you know that's how you get a uh, dungeon world coming out of the uh, indie movement and so forth and uh, I think uh, you know there's sort of a, a cultural uh, barriers that I would love to see come down and see everybody uh, back playing at the same table and seeing you know a support for a game like that uh, register at the Ennies is uh, maybe hopefully a step toward that and a realization that we're all uh, still kind of doing the same thing and working in the same categories. Yeah, I think that, you know, it, we, gaming as a whole gets better when you know more about more games. Um, this is perhaps a privileged viewpoint from having spent a decade reviewing all of them, but I think it certainly helped my uh, design ch- chops such as they are to have looked at a whole bunch of designs from a whole bunch of different game traditions. And, you know, it, it certainly if you're interested in designing, it can't kill you to look at what people are doing. And I think even if you're interested in play, it's it's fun to look over the fence at your neighbors and maybe see how they're hawking the old uh, soccer ball around. So uh, and I guess you alluded to it uh, a bit there, but we do really want to thank all of the uh, Ennies voters who voted for uh, this very podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff and uh, therefore led us to get to jump up onto the podium, do a quick nerd trope in thanks for a gold award. So uh, we'd like to thank all of you who voted for us. Uh, that makes uh, two in a row, which uh, is very, uh, very uh, gratifying and uh, humbling. So thanks to everybody who helped make that happen for us. And I'd like to thank the uh, subset or overset of our listeners who voted for me for the uh, Ken Writes About Stuff, which won a silver any for Best Electronic Book, a nonsense category for nonsense products. But it's an any is an any uh, on the resume, and I was happy to win it. Perhaps you want to slightly expand your argument there. Well, it's 2015. All books are electronic, and the notion of rewarding a product for not having been published specifically uh, in print seems odd and retrograde to me. Yeah, it goes back to there was sort of a, a moment there where that seemed like its own movement and its own thing and its own business model, but it's so uh, one that it's just become an obvious thing. And perhaps there's uh, maybe another role-playing related category or two that could uh, be slotted in, in there, there and, and take yes. that time and, and get any's for an actual design divergence or an actual category divergence. I mean, again, an any is an any, and I did beat some competition to get my silver, and I'm happy to have done that, and I'm very glad that everyone voted for me, but I've been saying since, uh, you know, probably for years now that this is a silly, silly category, and I think to win an any in it is the universe or perhaps my audience <laughs> rewarding uh, me with an ironic, uh, with an ironic touch. Yes. Uh, actual irony, not Alanis Morissette. Not Alanis Morissette irony. irony. Although it was nothing like having rain on my wedding day to win that any. So. Exactly.
so I guess at this point we might want to move uh, to some uh, news that's closer to home because Pelgrane uh, made a uh, number of uh, announcements of upcoming projects. Uh, next year will be the 10th anniversary of Gumshoe. It was uh, 10 years ago that uh, Simon and I uh, sat, or well, it'll be 10 years ago next year uh, when Simon and I sat uh, together at a single little table with no banner behind us and a little stack of copies of Ezra Harris first edition and a few uh, uh, copies of Dying Earth. And uh, uh, we had a lot of time to bond <laughs> over the course of heavy bonding Gen Con 10 years ago. So we're going to make next year a big deal year for uh, Gumshoe, which continues to uh, grow in strength. Thankfully, we were uh, at this year's show. I found once again, it kind of goes in waves. And this was a year of uh, of acquainting people with the basic concept of gumshoe and selling uh, copies of Trail of Cthulhu, which is sort of now the effective kind of uh, uh, anchor of the uh, of the gumshoe line. And I found myself explaining the basics a lot this this time around. And so we have lots of stuff in the pipeline. Do you want to uh, briefly share a moment of inarticulate frustration over the uh, timing of Dracula dossier before we move on to next year's announcements. Those of you who were at Gen Con and saw me and asked how the show was going, and I thank you for that, heard my standard response, which was Dracula dossier did not make it to the show. But other than that, the play was excellent. The, the, the play was interest excellent, Mrs. Lincoln. Yeah, yeah the, the play was yeah. well. I'm speaking as Mrs. Lincoln in this particular oh, metaphor, labored as it is. Gen Con was hella early this year. It was end of July, not middle of August, which is where it normally lives. Two weeks is hella. Two weeks uh, is boys hella. Boys and girls in the... Uh, <laughs> in the world of publishing, it is super hella. And printers, uh, and I mean no offense to any printers out there, are the devil. And so the combination of those two factors... Uh, meant that Gen that Dracula dossier was always kind of on the bubble as to whether it would get there. Well, the bubble popped well and truly uh, before the show, and Dracula dossier was not there. We were taking pre-orders there. I assume uh, very shortly we'll be taking pre-orders on the Pelgrin website if we're not already, possibly by the time you hear this. So there was some uh, material salvaged from the wreck, but it would have been nice, uh, not just for my vaunted ego, but also for the good folks at Pelgrin, to have had a anchor product uh, or a new uh, exciting anchor product uh, blow up at the show and take the world by storm and see people uh, give themselves back strain by carrying the two books around would have been very, very delightful. That said, Dracula dossier is very, very delightful. I'm glad that we spent the time to get things right as opposed to blew it off in the interests of making a, an arbitrary Gen Con deadline. So the product is going to be those two weeks better uh, because that's what it took to get it done. But it is just a modicum of frustrating that it was not there at the show. But there you go. These things happen. Worst things happen at sea, as the man says. Yes. What does not uh, kill you uh, makes you uh, release closer to dragon meat. Um, but uh, the exciting things that uh, next year we'll be biting our nails about to see whether they uh, get past all the hurdles and show up at the tables at Gen Con. Uh, I think the leading one is one that uh, caused a ripple, a frisson of excitement uh, through social media once we started uh, uh, tweeting about it. So, Ken, why don't you tell people about the fall of Delta Green? We are producing a co, uh, a licensed Delta Green standalone game uh, for Gumshoe uh, by dint, by license from the good people at Arc Dream, who currently hold the Delta Green Partnerships U-case in such matters. They are producing, of course, their brand new Delta Green RPG that will begin kickstarting, I think, in September. And uh, the fall of Delta Green will be an add-on for that Kickstarter. Uh, we will be releasing it 
next year at Gen Con if uh, the Elder Gods are finished mocking me. Right, and and I guess we should, uh, just to be clear on what the difference between an add-on and a stretch goal is in this instance, and that means that you're not going to have to wait for the Delta Green Kickstarter to reach a certain threshold before Fall of Delta Green actually becomes a possibility, but rather it's a package deal where you can purchase this game in sort of a one-stop transaction at the same time as you with... back at any level yes right so even if you just give a dollar to uh to the delta green rpg which you should not which do, would be full you should give extreme. much more because then you could get the game uh yes. but you can buy uh fall of delta green as an add-on and the uh, it will be a standalone gumshoe game as i mentioned it will import all of the new delta green tech of organizations and bonds and uh you know losing sanity by destroying your relationships that's that's going to be beautiful game uh, mechanical stuff greg has worked very very hard on the new mechanics for delta green and they're they're super awesome and very sleek and fun while being utterly playable to those of you who are old school uh, brp chaosium call of cthulhu fans uh we're going to take that and then do the same thing so it'll be just as playable and recognizable and interoperable if you are a trail of cthulhu or knights black agents player this uh, game is set in the last era in which Delta Green operated as the official sanctioned anti-mythos arm of the United States government, the 1960s. So it will cover the decade 1961 to 71, 71 being when Delta Green destroyed itself in the jungles of Indochina in a perhaps um, uh, <laughs> overladen metaphor, but that is how history works many times. Um, so Delta Green goes out of existence officially in 1971. That will be the end of the fall of Delta Green as well. So this is the narrative of that fall, and it is also the fall of Delta Green after the summer of uh, its uh, existence. So it's sort of a, a lovely uh, play on words. I get to go back and reread a bunch of stuff about the 60s. Uh, we'll have an amount of Vietnam in it, but that's not going to be the sole focus. We're going to definitely involve the Congo and, uh, and Aden and Cuba and all the other places that American deniable folk were around denying stuff, as well as plenty of fun at home with the summer of love and the protests and the assassinations and the space and the space race. So we can have Delta Green in space if we think of a really good approach for it. So there's lots of good stuff coming. I will be the primary writer and designer on Fall of Delta Green. Because but who else could possibly be? Exactly. Uh, but we will probably wind up incorporating one or two other people simply because I think the book will be longer than I would normally be able to get done in a year. So uh, this is uh, the thing to look forward to, and we will keep you posted here on the show, uh, certainly, and probably on the Pelgrane website as more details become available and as actual cover art becomes available. The image that you see there is an image from our excellent uh, scenario, Castle Bravo, because it turned out it was a period-appropriate helicopter being eaten by a flying polyp. And if that doesn't say 1960s, then you weren't there. It, it was all about the flying polyp. It was all 1960s. about... It was a, It was all of those things. It was a good shot. Yeah, yeah. Tune in, drop out, flying polyp. Fra flying polyp. So, uh, the, my project uh, that uh, got announced at the show is Gumshoe One to one uh, and uh, this will be a retuning of the gumshoe rules for one gm and one player which is a request that we often get and also something that uh, generically is super well suited to uh, a mystery setup because you way more often especially in literature uh, but also even on tv uh, see single detective investigations and so i want to create a set of rules uh, that supports that so if you want to uh, play for your uh, 
your son or your parent or your spouse or uh, just the one person in your town who you can get together with, uh, this will be the vehicle for that. The focus of this initial product, since just having a set of rules with nothing uh, setting-wise or adventure-wise to go with it, uh, would not be particularly fun, wouldn't do the job. We're going to do hard-boiled Cthulhu. So this will be our take on film noir in 40s Los Angeles and how that uh, its themes and images would intersect uh, with the mythos as your uh, detective goes down uh, the mean streets of Los Angeles uh, dodging uh, both Bugsy Siegel and Yagalanak. And so uh, this will require a, a lot of rethinking because, for example, just the idea of character death in a solo game is, you know, it would be pretty dumb to think of a Marlowe novel where he just gets killed uh, two-thirds of the way through the novel without solving the mystery. Um, that's, uh, you know, there are occasional examples where, where that happens, like the death of Peros and so forth. But, you know, in general, that's ridiculous. So uh, rules-wise, how do you support suspense while taking the threat of death out of combat? And so that'll be uh, my uh, project for the next little while. I'm taking a quick break from uh, Six Ages, the mobile game project that I'm working on in order to finish up the original design manuscript for that, and then I'll be doing uh, in-house testing. I guess there'll be some lonely Thursday nights where I only invite one of my playgroup over to <laughs> to initially test it, and then we'll hopefully we'll get it out to uh, outside uh, testers and uh, get that uh, well in the pipeline for another uh, thing to have on our table for next year's Gen Con. Uh, and the other uh, Robin-related announcement even has the word Robin in it. I'm uh, going to jump on a bandwagon that uh, Palgrain has established of its monthly subscription series. There's a 13th age mo monthly, and of course, Ken writes about stuff. Well, that's will soon be accompanied by Robin writes about stuff. So uh, that will be uh, fun and another reason to uh, keep people uh, coming back to the uh, Palgrain website and uh, another source of topics for this here podcast. Ironically enough, or not ironically, ironically enough. Yeah. Um, I guess briefly, uh, because we are uh, we have found that this podcast takes as much fun and energy and time as Gen Con itself in many ways, uh, this podcast episode, rather, we should mention any particular highlights from our panels. Uh, Robin, were you on any uh, fun and exciting panels? I know you were over in the writer's track like a traitor. Yeah, I, I also did four panels in the uh, Gen Con Writer's Symposium. And this is another thing that has sort of exploded uh, while uh, many people were, uh, you know, looking at all the other shiny things. So three years ago, I did uh, one of the writer's panels and it was, uh, you know, well attended and everything. And it was cool. And uh, but uh, this year it's enormous. There are huge lineups there. Basic seminar hall, I think. Uh, seated like uh, 100, 200 people. And uh, so I did a, a number of them, one on dialogue tags. Elizabeth Bear was the moderator of that one. Uh, there was one on uh, uh, ensemble characters. Uh, there was another on uh, the sort of uh, story arc that a character goes through where they're uh, uh, torn down and then rebuilt again, or, or perhaps vice versa. And uh, that one had uh, uh, Terry Brooks of uh, Shannara fame on it. He was a, a, a lovely guy with uh, a lot of uh, interesting things to say. So, uh, And those uh, seminars are incredibly well attended. There are a lot of people sitting there with their notebooks in hand. And so I uh, hope I was able to uh, provide some wisdom and analysis for people. And I think I might actually steal some of the topics of those panels and do uh, segments 
uh, on them going forward on how to write good, because uh, one of the best ways to write good is to steal from the greats, and if you can't do that, uh, steal from Mark Tasson. Not that he's not great, he's a great organizer of writer's symposium, and he's so great that I might swipe some of his topics and sort of go over those sorts of things uh, that I said in the panels. Um, I was, until I found out that I, my recording app was not really working, uh, annoyed at myself for not recording the dramatic interaction panel, which was uh, drama system focus, but also uh, was written to draw in and include people who were interested in adding dramatic interactions to their other games. And that was a real delight. Uh, uh, Gar Hanrahan, who wrote one of the series pitches, and uh, Rachel Kahn, who uh, does double duty not only as uh, illustrator of many of the Hill Folk series pitches, but is a stalwart player of Hill Folk in my own group, uh, was there to uh, provide player side insights and that was really useful and we uh, even played out a little sample scene uh, that could be like an apocryphal scene from the uh, Alma Mater Magica series that uh, we're currently running here at home. Uh, so her uh, uh, Maurice, the uh, intelligent centipede who uh, is trying to wor worm his way into her life as a familiar and uh, her character Anne uh, had, a, uh, had a scene that sort of demonstrated the petitioner uh, grantor structure, and it seemed like people got uh, some cool insights out of that, and that was the first iteration of that panel, and we had pretty good attendance. We also did the investigative role-playing uh, panel, and I, when I saw on the, the Gen Con site that it had sold out at 80 tickets, I thought, uh, obviously, there's a problem with the uh, registration, but no, it was packed. And uh, a couple of people did record that, and I'm hoping to get the audio from them to uh, recycle uh, whatever audio does not repeat things that we've uh, said before on that topic and recycled before on that topic. Also on that panel was Ruth Tillman, who is one of the rising stars of Gumshoe, Gumshoe Adventure Writing. She's got a scenario in the upcoming Edom Files, and I believe she's got one for the upcoming Trail of Cthulhu collection, Out of the Woods. So uh, she is a rising star amongst our designers, and it was good to have her there providing sort of the insight of someone who is coming into Gumshoe as a beginning uh, writer in the role-playing field and as a long-time and experienced uh, GM in the Gumshoe field. So she had a lot of good points to make. Yeah, I was really happy to drag her uh, out of the uh, audience. Last year, she was there uh, uh, listening and taking copious notes and... Uh, uh, this year, I felt that uh, we need to have her up on the panel, and she uh, did a really great job of providing insights about the system from the perspective of an emerging writer, so I was very happy to see her there. Um, and I guess, finally, is there, are there any other sort of general highlight moments of Gen Con that you uh, would like to mention before we both crawl back into uh, bed for another uh, 18 hours of sleep? <laughs> I, I should mention that on the Cthulhu All-Stars panel, I either contradicted or was contradicted by Sandy Peterson, his own self, no fewer than five times. So <laughs> I will cherish that uh, for yes. a great long time. Sandy, of course, being Sandy Peterson, the creator of Call of Cthulhu, can contradict me all he wants for the whole rest of our mutual long lives, and I will always reverence and love him. At, but this for, is on matters of interpretation, not of dogma. No, no, right? it, was, it was exactly. It's it's very much a, um, uh, a Pope and the Jesuit uh, general um, having minor disputes about interpretation, but obviously in dogma and doctrine, there is Sandy's way and there is the wrong way, uh, and that is always going to be true in Cthulhu. So that was a, that was a fun panel, and we had a lot of uh, laughs, and I think we sort of told people about 
Lovecraft's impact and the nature of that impact. And we eventually uh, had a seance at the end in which, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but we had a seance at a Cthulhu panel. So what do you think happened? Um, well, I know uh, there's a presidential year coming yeah. up. Well, that wasn't it. Um, this, <laughs> this, this was a, uh, this was so a Cthulhu has looked at the, uh, Republican, uh, field and just went, uh, I won't stand out again. It's sort of like my message has really kind of been taken. <laughs> I, and also being really, really old, I can't really, you know, contribute anything to the Democrat side. So there yeah. you go. Um, anyway, that, that was a fun panel to be on and, uh, great fun. And I did a run in on the world design panel on Sunday, although Keith Baker, Brandon Boren, Lynn Hardy, and Elsa Henry kind of had it wrapped up, but I felt I needed to be there to say, start with earth in my old man voice <laughs> at the very beginning. And well, don't indeed you just I did. generally look up the program book and go into every world building panel and, uh, voice bomb it at some yeah, point. You know, I try to do it in panels where either I'm an invited guest or since I was the person who invited all the panelists to the show, I can feel like an invited guest. There you go. Which was the case in this one. Well, yes, I, I would not want to imply you were some sort of gazumper. Uh, no, not gazumping. Uh, my gazumping days are well behind me, Robin, as you well know. Um, so I guess finally, uh, I would like to plant a bug in the ear of uh, you, the listener, that we uh, did some uh, researching at the show uh, by... Uh, picking the brains of uh, podcasters who had done successful Patreons. Uh, we've been hearing for a while now that there are lots of people who uh, would be happy to donate to the show if we were to move our venue uh, from the unclean shores of PayPal, uh, or at least the uh, less fun shores of PayPal, to uh, some, the kind of back-and-forth communication uh, that you get from a Patreon. Uh, so uh, we're going to look into that in the uh, weeks ahead. And so uh, get thinking, listeners, about uh, what sorts of uh, special fun things that we could do to uh, entertain you a little bit extra if you decide to uh, donate and support the show. So, for example, uh, Ken, I think you're working on a number that we would have to hit for it to make uh, sense for you to take the time to write uh, detailed show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, it is something we've always been aware uh, that people uh, wanted, but we just uh, at this point do not have the uh, time to do due to the pressures of all of our other projects. But there, there must be a number in a capitalist society that would uh, make that look like a different calculation. So Ken is I have my people researching that. Uh, Virgil is on it right now. And uh, we are talking about sort of NPR-style pledge rewards where uh, if you are a overly generous, almost insane uh, Patreon patron, uh, maybe there might be a Ken and Robin t-shirt in it for you or a, I don't know what, something graphic and fun that you can wear to flaunt your superior podcast listening habits in front of the rude masses who surround you day by day. Another uh, possibility is like a print-on-demand uh, version of Nerd Trope card. Could that happen. might be fun. Could happen. Um, so we're going we're gonna to try and do things that aren't going to get us in the merchandise fulfillment uh Department. Yes, but so, there are uh, many uh, sort of methodologies now in this wired, wonderful world where we simply say uh, loudly into the computer, make a T-shirt happen, and somewhere far away it does, and you can order and it, it without... And shipped with, with no attention being paid by me. Right. That, that yes. sounds awesome. It, it does sound awesome. Because I don't so have, have to, like, to... practice my T-shirt cannon uh, firing skills. That would be no, time away uh, from going to um, one. I, I think you're, you'd be a natural. I, I go to my share of sporting events, and I think you'd do it well. I don't know. I feel I feel like I'm being inveigled. And when you feel like you're being inveigled, and it's the day after Gen Con, and you've spoken for uh, over an hour on your podcast, I think it's about time to wrap things up. So thanks, everybody. 
to uh, especially all of you who voted for us for the any or came by to compliment us on the podcast. And there are a lot of you, and that's extraordinarily gratifying. It's uh, at shows like Gen Con that you know that what you're doing is not just going out into the ether to bounce around unattended to, and especially uh, for the podcast, uh, your uh, comments and encouragements are uh, very essential, and they remind us, uh, A, why we're doing this, and B, that we should do another Food Hut soon, because it's actually a very popular uh, segment. <laughs> and yeah. uh, uh, every time we go to Gen Con, we hear uh, more Food Hut. And I think part of that is that people have lined up at Steak and Shake and are having fantasies <laughs> of other sort of other foodstuffs, but uh, uh, we're going to uh, make that dream true uh, soon, uh, Food Hut fans. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Ensure that we do not humiliate ourselves by sporting unfashionable lanyards. Hit the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as Jacob Ansari, Daniel Callahan, Bruce Miller, and Robert Dean. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or post-convention sleep pod by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.